So I guess we kind of thought of ourselves as, you know, modern day Robin Hoods in that sense of, hey, let's make something really cool, desirable, valuable for us rich Westerners, and then use that to try to also help be a part of solutions to people with with massive problems around the world as well. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven, sustainable product brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, and today we're speaking with Adrian Reef, CEO and co-founder of Umana Venture Studio, transforming world-changing ideas into scalable businesses and connecting impact capital to ambitious companies building a better world. One thing I was thinking of, actually, when I was thinking about your history is we kind of have a similar start point to our careers down the sustainable food lane and that we both took a year to go do some travel and had some epiphanies or different things on that trip that kind of like pushed us down our path. So I think it would be fun for the listeners slash watchers to uh, hear a little bit more about your story of like what your travels were like and what, what inspiration came during those travels. Yeah. So that was 2010. When were you traveling? 2009? 2008. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 2010, I left the US. I left my corporate job working for UBS Wealth Management, left a paycheck that showed up in my bank account every every two weeks and went to what? Which is really nice. Yeah. Those were the days. Yeah. (laughs) Those were the days. And went to uh, China to teach English for four months. And then basically I said, I'm going to travel until I run out of money or stop having fun. And seven months later, I was spent my last thousand bucks on the plane ticket to get back home. And throughout that time, I, I went from China to... I traveled around China for a little bit, and then I went up into Mongolia and rode horses with a couple of Mongolians and a couple other folks for two weeks, and then trained back to... China and spent some time in Western China next to the Tibetan Autonomous Region, the area that was once Tibet and has been taken over by by China and got to be in Tibetan culture for a while, which was amazing. Then flew down to Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and then eventually to Nepal, where I was trekking up towards Mount Everest base camp. And this is kind of like the epiphany story from, from my first company, Yum Butter. I was hiking and I carried peanut butter and crackers with me, but it was like just this shitty peanut butter that I'd found in Kathmandu and was carrying with me. And I was putting it on these Wasa crackers, W-A-S-A. They even sell the Wasa here. And one day I decided to sprinkle a bunch of local spices on this peanut butter and crackers during a lunch break. And there was like hot cayenne pepper in there and turmeric and cumin and whatever else is in with those spice blends. And it was delicious. And so that's kind of the the moment I was like, man, I, when I get back home and I want to start a, a food company, I want to start a peanut butter company, I want to make delicious fresh ground peanut butters that with flavors that nobody's ever seen before. But it was kind of that aha moment for me where I could come back, do something creative and fun with food yeah, discovered that in in the in the Nepal Himalaya, amongst a lot of other things about about life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I have to say, I still miss some of your original potions that I can't get out here in Seattle. Some of them might still be made by Yum Butter out there locally. I'm not entirely sure, but I loved like the what was it, like cranberry and coconut and the spicy Thai and <laughs> all those fun flavors that you just can't really get anywhere. But I think that's the missing potential of, of peanut butter. It's like goes so well with so many things. That, huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's somebody that like every few years there'll be a new company that launches a spicy peanut butter. And so you're referencing the one I, I discovered in the Himalaya, the spicy Thai. And yeah, I mean, I mean, people, people want it, but it doesn't seem to have like this retail staying power for some reason. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just not the, it's, it's kind of like, funky beers, right? It's like something you want to try and, and get occasionally, but probably not the thing you're going to drink every day <laughs> yeah, or multiple yeah, exactly. times a day or something like that. So, exactly. Which makes sense. And I get that, but I, I wish there was more room for 
playful flavors in the U.S. market because so often a lot of our clients come up with these really fun flavors. But like you said, it's usually like the plain something or other that ends up being the best seller because people just don't want the craziness, which breaks my heart because I love crazy. And the other thing is when you speak to a consultant or somebody who's helping you understand the data of what sells, you know, you go look at the the spins reports for nut butter sales from Whole Foods and it's their 365 peanut butter, 365 crunchy, 365 almond butter, and then, you know, maybe a couple of other brands, but it's usually just the, the most basic one that's selling 10 times the original unique creative flavors. And so if you're looking at the data, you you have to go where the where the volume is going. And I think it makes it really hard to to be creative when the space is really run by a few large companies doing serious volume. Yeah, that's true. If it's a volume game, then you gotta go where the volume is. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. So so you on that trip you discovered your joy of or the, the love of spicy peanut butter, for example. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you come back and you launch a company, which, you know, that makes sense. You have a business degree. Why not uh, launch your own company instead of advising others? But wh- where did the sustainability and social mission part of that come from? Like, what inspired you to focus on that? I think traveling around the world and leaving finance, I just had a, a really different perspective on on my life and what I wanted to do with my life. And you know, I really wanted to contribute my gifts in a in a positive way, and I also spent some time on traveling around the world. Ten of those days in a silent meditation retreat, where I got to get closer to my own suffering and also think more consciously about the suffering of others around the world, and came out of that time realizing that. I wanted my life to be about helping to to be a part of that alleviation of suffering in some way. And alleviation of suffering sounds so like formal and, and distinct, and, and it's not really that way for me. It's more fun and playful. But I knew I, I just wanted to have that deeper sense of, of something other than just either making wealthier people wealthy or selling a bunch of shit that doesn't really make much difference in the world. And you know, at the end of the day, we we die, we go to our grave, and pretty soon thereafter, we're forgotten. And so, you know, why not try to leave a little bit more of a legacy than selling a bunch of shit and making a bunch of money for yourself? And so that that philosophy really drove how we wanted to run the business. And so, Young Butter was built on what Matt, my co-founder, and I defined as holistic responsibility and thinking how can we take responsibility throughout every aspect of the supply chain from where we get our ingredients from to who we partner with and who we employ to our environmental footprint to what the food impact has on a consumer's body to even people who aren't connected to the supply chain. And so from that, we developed what we called buy one, feed one. And it meant that every time someone bought a jar or a pouch of yum butter, we would help feed a child with malnutrition and we partnered with a nonprofit in, in Haiti at first to do that and then shifted to a rural region of Guatemala with a nonprofit medical clinic there. And yeah, and really just wanted to to do really cool things with with this brand as the center of the way to do those cool things. So I guess we kind of thought of ourselves as, you know, modern day Robin Hoods in that sense of, hey, let's make something really cool, desirable, valuable for us rich Westerners and then use that to try to also help be a part of solutions to people with with massive problems around the world as well. Yeah, that's great. I, I like I resonate with what you were talking about too is you know we're we're gonna live a, a life and then go to our grave and mostly be forgotten. So like why not make the time that you were here yeah. worthwhile? And I feel that same way. It's like if I can rather than hoarding a bunch of resources for myself, like if I can just make other people's lives better while I'm here, then that will last much longer than my fat bank account. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> so why not, why not do some of that more meaningful work? And I, I had the same kind of issue of, I felt like I, before I went into sustainable impact work, I felt like my whole job was making rich people richer and making pretty trash basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I just got tired of that and wanted to do something a little bit more meaningful, feel good about what I did instead of, 
do what I do during the weekdays and find something I can love in the weekends, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of people get stuck with. I just wanted to like do all the good stuff I could all yeah. the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing there's a lot of designers or some designers listening to this, given you and your network. I've started following a design company out of the UK and I won't name their name, but it's named after a, a man. And I get their, you know, their emails every <laughs> every few days. And they just like it's beautiful stuff, but it's just like more shit. Like really expensive shit. And like how long can they really keep this up, you know? Um looking into the future. And yeah, so I think I think the design world and the product development world has a long way to go on that front of making fancier stuff. Fancy, what do you call it? Pretty trash. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. There's so much that can be done, and I think part of the barrier for people is that it can be hard to do that work. Right? It's like easy to just say yes to projects. It's easy to add more. It's glitter onto you know, something to make it shiny and pop off the shelf. But it's harder to think about like, well, do people actually need this? Should we be even making this product in the first yeah. place? Could this be yeah. a service instead of a product? And all the kind of sustainability questions you could be asking that take, you know, maybe some money out of your pocket and take more time to execute, but hopefully in long run, make a better product. Yeah. But I digress. Well, um, on that note, I know we got other things to cover, but there's a book called Green Swans. And it's about the coming boom in regenerative capitalism. And so I think we're at a point where the sustainable aspects of things, the thinking regeneratively, creating regenerative business models is going to be a market differentiator, not just in this, not just our little narrative inside of our sustainability space for the last decade has been people are willing to pay more for your like slightly more sustainable product, right? So, you know, you can charge a premium for it and it'll be a little bit better. But I think that that narrative is true, and but it, it's not system changing. And I think this notion of regenerative capitalism, where if you can actually create a product or a service that gives more back to the world and creates a benefit for the world, it's going to be more disruptive than kind of a, a little bit incremental improvement. And there's so many examples in that book, Green Swans, about how disruption is coming from radically new business models that take into account environmental sustainability and regeneration. And so I think, you know, I think it's just really compelling to be thinking about that. And that sort of narrative has major CEOs rethinking their business models. You know, people who've been doing cradle to grave businesses for decades, if not centuries, are now thinking about cradle to cradle businesses. And so I find that really, really positive and optimistic yeah that's cool i'm gonna have to check out that book i've been playing around with the term servant capitalism a little bit lately mm -hmm. like, rather than because often like right now the status quo is like you're in a business is in service of the stakeholders or sorry the shareholders but like if a business is truly in in service of all the stakeholders the people planet communities you know employees etc then could we be more like servant leaders as businesses and kind of walk along the people we're trying to serve and work with them instead of create things for them, like design with and, and create like a better space where, where we're in the trenches with them and we're doing the good work and we're doing it all in service of making the world a better place. So mm -hmm. I, I dig that regenerative capitalism spin on it too, because I think that takes it even a step further. It's not just about, can we, serve people but can we like replenish the systems that we've destroyed and other things along the way or can we yeah rebuild better um societal structures that have more equity built into it instead of you know like sustainability needed to happen and you know now that we realize we're too late we realize we can't just do less bad we have to do more good so i'm going to push towards regenerative focus now yeah yeah so out of curiosity as a entrepreneur i think young butter was your first business so tell us about the kind of any struggles that you had any big ahas from kind of taking an idea that started at a farmer's market where I, I believe you were doing everything like making all the food designing your labels and photoshop like selling the product you know doing pretty much all the whole thing starting there and then scaling to a national brand that eventually ended up selling to another company 
Yeah. So it wasn't my first business. My first business was mm. in college where I was a, a walk-on football player. And I realized that the scholarship football players got their textbooks for free, but they couldn't sell them back to the bookstore because it would be against NCAA policy. So there was a market to be found <laughs> paying yes. them for their books at about half price of what I could then sell them on at that time, half.com or uh, which was like a you know, precursor to Amazon or eBay. And so I had a good little end of this every semester business going for my last couple semesters, <laughs> yes. my last couple of years in college. Yeah, that was probably illegal. I hope they don't come after me now. But that was that was my, my first business. Hope the IRS um, is listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. But then yeah, Yum Butter. Yeah, we started that at a farmer's market, literally with a black and decker food processor from Target. I think the food processor was fifty bucks. And I would go to the grocery store and buy bulk peanuts and grind them up into peanut butter and add fun things like cranberry and coconut and chocolate and spices and the, and the spicy Thai and really built a, an amazing, really supportive local following in Madison, Wisconsin. And then started to get asked to be in retail stores. And I was like, I don't know how to do that and figured that out and built out a small commercial kitchen. And then, like you mentioned, eventually scaled that to being sold in um, at the time I stepped away about 8,000 retailers across the country. This is going to be a really boring answer to what, what did you learn? But the biggest thing I tell entrepreneurs now that come to me and they're talking about, you know, I'm going to get into 800 stores and then I'm going to go to 4,000. I'm like, oh, what does your cash flow look like? And they're like, huh? What? No, no, we can, we can do this. And I learned really painfully about what I call a cash flow lag. And for people who don't know what that is, imagine I give you, you know, a hundred bucks today. And you use that hundred bucks to buy your peanuts, buy your packaging. Okay, the hundred bucks is gone. And then you sell your peanuts and your packaging to a distributor. And then they sell that to a retailer. And then maybe 60 days down the road, they eventually pay you, you know, 150 bucks back for that thing that cost you a hundred bucks to make. So you got 50 bucks profit, but now you're, you haven't had money for two months to go make more product and you only got 50 bucks back from the hundred I lent you. And so there's a cash flow lag, meaning if you don't have enough capital lying around to fund your growth, three to four months of growth into the future, you're basically going to run out of cash to pay yourself, pay your employees, buy new ingredients, pay your co-packers or, or however you're running your business. And most people don't think about that. And so they, they go out and they sell, sell, sell. But then they look at their bank account like, why don't we have any money? So that's something that I took away and I, I relate to anybody I talk with these days and the current businesses that I'm helping run because you know money is, is the lifeblood of business. Hate it or love it, that's what it is. So that's one of the, the key things I took away. You know, Another one is I love building brands and... I think branding is really interesting because you you have these brands that will sometimes come out of nowhere. Everybody's talking about them. And then six months later, nobody's talking about them. You're like, oh, that's really fascinating. And so I also studied psychology in college. And so I'm just always thinking about like what what is branding and how why does all of a sudden something become hot? And you know, there's just kind of this crowd mentality of like everybody wants to get in on the hot thing. But then if that product or service doesn't actually add value to their life, like it's just a, you know, kind of a flashy thing, they end up forgetting about it and moving on to something else that actually does add value. And so, you know, when you think about branding, I think people think about design, which is, is critical. Um, they think about kind of culture, which is critical. But at the end of the day, are you really solving a deep, deep problem for, for people? And early on, we were making fresh ground peanut butter, fresh ground almond butter. It was delicious. You know, it taste test. It would beat any other store-bought peanut butter. And that was kind of our UVP early on. But it, we got to a point where it just didn't solve that big of a problem for people. And so we had to think outside of the jar, pun intended. I know you love puns. Nice. Well played. <laughs> And we, you know, with your help in many of the steps of that, we designed the first multi-serving 
resealable pouch, peanut butter in a pouch, and introduced that into the market. And, and that helped us go from kind of a, a mid-sized brand, regional brand, to being picked up all across the country and being in demand by a lot of buyers who saw that as the next curve of how nut butters in this case and, and a lot of other foods now are being delivered to the consumer with more functionality, more portability and convenience. And also like the lightweight of the packaging helps save on transportation costs and things like that. So we had to invent our way out of being, you know, not not problem solving enough for the, the average person. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've seen so many, you know, of our clients are just people I know in the industry that get caught in that cash flow crunch that you mentioned earlier, where you get this big, exciting order, but you can't even afford to fulfill it. <laughs> so you're yeah. scrambling last minute to go get money, or you could afford to fill it, but then you can't afford to pay your staff afterwards. And you're just sitting around waiting for that uh, check to come through. And it, mm-hmm. it can get super difficult. So I think that's why also probably you're more in finance than I am, but that's probably why you see a lot more sophisticated startups these days that are going after early rounds of funding so that they know, you know, they may only be one year in business, but if they get a huge opportunity, they want to be able to jump on it instead of more organically kind of slow growing by bootstrapping. Yeah. Um, potentially. Yeah. And I think it's possible to do, to do either, but you have to know which one you're doing. If you're going to bootstrap it, you got to figure out what that looks like from a projections and cash flow standpoint. If you're going to go the other direction, you better go get get the money and you know have the have the orders lined up to be able to use that money right away and go go grow so that you can you know show those investors who gave you a bunch of money that there's actually traction for your product. And so both are valid, but you just got to know what you're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. And then to your other point, the you know, you can make a big splash in the beginning by being the new kid on the block or the first mover or whatever it is. But after that buzz dies down, what's left? And the way I often describe branding is it's, you know, you're you're making a promise and that promise might sound exciting, but then mm. if it's hollow in the end and like people aren't, you're not fulfilling that promise in any substantial way, then of course the buzz dies down and people move on. But also, to your point, I think what's also interesting is that it's also just about like constant innovation, evolution, kind of innovating that, you know, you might have been the the first cool kid to the block with some spicy peanut butter, but once somebody else comes out with flavored peanut butters, then what are you, right? So like finding ways to stay relevant and keep moving forward and stay at the top of people's mind in a in a meaningful, authentic way, I think is is kind of how brand scale like you you start with something awesome but you don't stop you you keep coming up with awesome you keep finding new ways to solve your customers problem yeah and i think young butter was good at that with you know not just the, the thinking outside the jar into the pouch but then also coming up with the functional line and you know it's continued to grow from there with keto lines and other other kind of things like they just keep digging into how they can stand out from mm-hmm. um, the rest of the brands so yeah that makes sense yeah. So from your entrepreneur experience, and actually this is a good segue because you were talking about one of your lessons were learned was more on the financial side. And I know you have some background in business and I think finance is stuff too, but, but you ended up moving into writing afterwards, which I'm not sure if you were much into writing previously and then you finally got some time to spend on it or if you were new to writing and just decided to dive in, but you ended up writing a book about uh, investing. So tell us about what that journey was like. Yeah, I, won't, I wouldn't call it moving into writing, but I did write a book. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm uh, not a writer, but um, I, I felt like after stepping away from Young Butter, yeah, I didn't have a singular focus and was, was very much trying to figure out what was next. But something that was really burning for me was this idea that, or this notion that, my friends and peers were coming to me, you know, asking how they should invest their money more sustainably. At that point, you know, I had carved out a pretty good name inside of the sustainable food space and also the sustainability consulting space. And also while raising money, I'd come across all sorts of different sources of, of capital from crowdfunding to impact capital and had 
a pretty good grasp on you know where people could go raise money and how people could invest money and had been investing for a little over a decade at that point um, on my own. But people would keep coming to me and, and saying, you know, Adrian, I want to do something with my money. I want it to grow, but also I don't want to be investing in oil or whatever the stock market, or I want to, you know, do good with my money. And so I spent three years on and off uh, researching, talking with people at organizations like Aspiration, which is a, a do-gooder bank and, and checking account, and people at AHP, American Homeowner Preservation, and a lot of these other organizations that a lot of people don't know about that basically try to allow people like us, everyday people like us, to do good with our money. And so they're investing in things like affordable housing. They're investing in urban urban renewal in places like downtown Philadelphia. They are investing in organic farmland. They're investing in responsible and sustainable food supply chain. They're investing in renewable energy. And I just knew I wanted to get this information out to people because I think our generation cares so deeply. And so after three years, um, I finally published you know, this 300-page book that I've been working on um, with over 100 ways to invest your money sustainably from really safe, low-interest checking accounts like the Clean Energy Credit Union all the way up to higher risk investments like crowdfunding and you know for example i've i've invested in a company called saunders electric car um, and they make or they're on the path to making a low-cost electric vehicle and i was a early angel investor via their crowdfunding campaign uh three probably three years ago and so you know they raised a million bucks from like 3,000 people or something like that. And so it was a way for the crowd to get engaged. But I really wanted to give people a, a strong sense that they could do more with their money because I know we all want to. And there are very, very tangible ways that we just don't know about because our financial advisors or our parents or our bosses or our 401ks at work don't tell us about these things. You know, They basically say, hey, just go stake your money in the market in an ETF, which isn't terrible advice, but it's just, it's just not all of the options. And so I wanted to make sure that we are using our money responsibly and that we have that if, if that's something you want to do, you have the, the power and the capacity to do that. Nice. So what was that journey like being a non-writer writing a book? Was it <laughs> a really painful process or were you like, you know what, just a little bit of uh, writing every day and I'll eventually get there. It was really painful, very painful <laughs> um, and and very fun. There were stages of research. There were stages of where I'd try to spend. I realized that I write better in chunks. And so I would you know do six to eight hour writing chunks every so often instead of like two or three days at a time instead of a little bit every day. I'm just not good at, at daily habits. And um, for me, writing is a, is a, is deep work. And so if you know anything about like Cal Newport's thoughts around deep work, you know, we have a limited amount of it every day, but we also get way more done in that deep work. And so to kind of go into this, this huge depth of knowledge that I've accumulated in this research and I got to pare it down and I got to understand it and I got to figure out how it all fits together. I had to carve out big chunks of time. And so not being a writer, I enjoy writing, but, and I think every writer will probably say this, it's just like hard to keep going. It's hard to create this big mess of a manuscript that doesn't make any sense and then come back and figure out how to have it make sense. And I did a couple things that, that really helped me. One was I reached out to friends and, and my larger network and asked about 15 to 20 people to be beta readers of the first draft of the book. So I actually... You know, it wasn't the final version, but it was kind of close. I uploaded it to Amazon. I, I printed 20 copies. I sent it to all of these people. And then I created a little form where they could put in their feedback. And it gave me a ton of insight on where I did things well and where things just sucked. So nice. I went back and read redrafted on that. And so I give a huge amount of credit to those folks who read the the, fir the beta version. And then I was struggling towards the end of like, like really getting the organizational structure 
tidied up and and so it made sense and i I flew to seattle and i spent three days with uh my friend steve walker who's just been super supportive and a brilliant brilliant person and we just like workshopped this until we got to a place of like okay this makes sense okay this you need to put this here you need to bring out these examples and bring in some more research here and more examples here and, and got it into a format where i could come back and just feel confident that i was writing towards something that was more decent than what I could create myself. And so it was super challenging and I wasn't ready to do it again, but it's been a couple, it's been a little over a year now since, oh. since putting it into the world. So, you know, I, I have flashes of where I'm like, okay, how painful it was. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready to write the, the next book. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's the way I joke about like childbirth. It's probably the same way. It's like, such a traumatic experience probably, but eventually you forget and you're like, Oh, I kind of want another child. <laughs> yeah. 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 You see a little kid roaming, falling around and doing cute things. You're like, Oh, this, this will be fun. Yeah. That's not so bad. <laughs> yeah. I remember it better than it was. Right. That's cool. Um, but you got it done and you, I'm pretty sure you self published it. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. I, I published it through Cedar and Sage, which is my, my publishing company. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Launched your own publishing company. Have you published any other books through it or just a one hit wonder through there and soon to be a two hit wonder? I, I published uh, I published my wife Laura's book through there, uh, which nice. is the, the Magic of Wellbeing. And then um, she's a ghostwriter and we published uh, one of her clients books through there as well. Did you really like drill her on the negotiations and like really push her, <laughs> push her down on her royalties there? <laughs> No, uh, yeah, yeah. She gets, she has full royalties. I did all the work for free. <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, well, that's cool. That's that's exciting. And uh, congrats! I've seen that it's kind of topped some charts in Amazon for at different points. I've seen you post that through social media. So congrats on yeah. that launch. Thank you. Yeah, I was, I was surprised it hit the Amazon Green Business Bestseller like the day nice. or two after after launching and. I think that's just a big thanks to all the people in my network who went out and bought it immediately and jumped right up there. I didn't expect it at all. So that was, that was really cool. That's cool. And then now, so business consultant to entrepreneur to writer to then now you're diving in with your recent job as the CEO of a venture studio, I believe is what you're calling it, right? So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about you know your journey from writing the book now into this new role. And kind of, I guess, describe that role and what your goals are with it. Yeah, I had a, a big aha, I think, at the beginning of 2020, before pandemic, but uh, but 2020, and really started trimming. I was consulting with uh, a few businesses, you know, helping them grow their businesses, and really realized that's not what I wanted to do. And I started, you know, figuring, trying to figure out. What's my gift? What do I really want to invest my next 30 to 35 years in? And after, I think in, in April, it started to really clarify and started to share this idea around a, a regenerative design firm and startup studio. Mm-hmm. And what I love is thinking about how business models can be more regenerative, like we talked about earlier with Green Swans, the book. And so I wanted to be able to you know, do that at a larger scale and not just do that for my own company, but help other companies do that. At the same time, I love starting companies, designing business models, thinking about problems and solutions and how to uniquely solve them. And so this idea that was coalescing also had a startup studio component, meaning we would spin out small solutions into the world with small amounts of capital, test them, prototype them using a lean startup methodology, and then seek funding for the ones that were gaining traction and kill the ones that weren't gaining traction. And cool thing about that is, you know, you can do that for, for pretty cheap. And so I, I spent, you know, was growing this company from mid 2020 on. And then I had a call from this woman, Bob Manuzzi, who runs Umana Incorporated, which is a small wealth management, boutique wealth management firm in the Bay Area and also a venture capital. She's a venture capitalist and helps manage three venture capital funds and some small private family office funds. And at first, just giving her advice on the nut butter space and the food industry as they're building a brand in that space. But then it became really clear that building my regenerative design firm and regenerative startup studio 
aligned exactly with what they were trying to do, which is redefine wealth and help high net worth people and influencers rethink how they deploy their capital into impactful mission-driven businesses and brands and projects around the world. And so, yeah, so now I run Umana Venture Studio, which is an arm of Umana Incorporated. And our our goal is basically to spin out solutions to some of the world's gnarliest problems and build mission-driven companies and, and brands. And we're we're working on one right now that's in the food space that's really cool and I think has the power to change how people think about a lot of different things, including sugar, including palm oil and deforestation, including childhood childhood hunger and obesity and well-being. And then we have a couple other projects in the pipeline that will both develop in-house and then also partner with existing entrepreneurs and or celebrities um, who want to you know put something out into the world in, in a big way. And we basically become a, a design firm with them from the whole, from everything from, from design to business model, planning to innovation, to growth and marketing and commercialization of, of whatever needs to happen for that. So it's kind of like my dream job. And I, I yeah, you know, it, it stumbled on me and it's, it, it's just been so fun. So amazing so far. Uh, yeah. It's so fun to see where people's paths take them. I feel like you can do a fair amount of planning, like kind of thinking about where you want to go, but it's often those paths that present themselves to you that end up being some of the more interesting paths, like where you didn't re- necessarily realize when you started out over here that you'd end up over here, but going through all the experiences and meeting all the people that you did, it naturally led down that path. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think all the new age folks talk about that as like alignment, right? These days, manifesting, everybody's trying to get into alignment so that the universe can reward them. So who knows how, how true that is. But I think there was, for me, some actuality around getting really clear about what I want to to create and to build and be in the world, and then the universe um, showing up in some way to to support that and say, like, "Cool, all right, here you go. Here, here's your try. We're going to give you a, a chance to see if you're really serious about what you what you say you're serious about." So, yeah, it's, it's been delightful. Yeah, that's actually a good segue too, because knowing you for however long I have now, like ten plus years or something, mm-hmm. I've uh, Notice that you're definitely like an experimental person. Like you, you will read about something and you'll just try to put it in practice and see where it fits in your life or you'll, you know, decide you're too busy and email is consuming too much time. So you'll do some, an auto reply and kind of manage your, your time on email or, or, you know, yeah. you'll, and maybe this is a common uh, ritual that you've continued, but you know, between ice baths and different kind of interesting diets or health and wellness routines that I've, I've found you constantly exploring new territories of self and of wellness. So I'm curious how, where that comes from and how you, how you keep that focus alive. Is it just all pure curiosity or is there something else driving that? Yeah, I think you hit it. I think, I think it is curiosity. I feel like that's one of my superpowers. If you know, we get to be braggish enough to give ourselves yeah. superpowers. <laughs> in, why not? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a, a, a sheer fascination for life and the human journey and the human body. And the more my curiosity grows, the more fascinated with the world and myself I am. And so, yeah, just. I feel like the culture that I grew up in was actually pretty close, not close minded. And I don't want to make it sound negative, but fairly rigid. Like these are the boxes that you live in. This is how the world works. And the more those boxes and boundaries and lines fall down and tumble down, the, the more beauty you, you see around you. And I've just witnessed so many amazing, beautiful things and continue to the a word I really like is intimate intimacy. And my wife, Laura uses this a lot, um, and it comes kind of from her Zen practice, which is based around waking up is just b- becoming more intimate with life and yourself. And I think the only way to become more intimate is to discover and question and go deeper into ourselves and our different belief structures and, and letting go of belief structures and trying on new ones. And yeah, so it, it just continues to be a 
rich kaleidoscopic reward system that probably at this point is just now my new dopamine reward system, <laughs> the same as <laughs> video games yeah. and Netflix. And, but it, it, it's, it's a fun one that I, I really enjoy. Nice. Do you have any life or wellness or anything experiments running at the moment? At the moment, this year, I, I'm trying out this journal called the the One Thing. I don't know if you've uh, it's got a po- post-it note on the front, but it's debossed there with the One Thing Planner, which kind of brings like a focus to each month, and there's a a focus for the year. Um, that's called your one thing. Unfortunately, I, c- I can't pick just one thing to focus on. So it's become my <laughs> three to four thing. <laughs> Breaking <laughs> but, uh, the rules. Yeah. I, I check in at the end of every month and it has a calendar. I, I love the format for it. So so that's been something from just like a, a priority management standpoint that I've been experimenting with this year. You know, I've been a, been a meditator for 10 years now, but always continue to like mix that up and recently heard an interview with Naval Ravikant and he talked about his meditation being 60 minutes for 60 days do an experiment where that 60 minutes is, is basically just like an open presence meditation it's not the traditional you know following the breath or, or saying a mantra and so i've started experimenting with that though just 10 minutes and not 60 minutes in the morning nice. or, or 25 minutes this morning actually but which is interesting because i become so maybe dogmatic about my own meditation practice and anything that wasn't my own meditation practice was like, no, that's not how you meditate. And so it's an opportunity for me to, to explore a different aspect of, of the mind and presence and awareness. And then cold, cold baths are still a big part of, of what I do though. It's winter here in Colorado now. So my cold tub that's basically like a, a cattle watering trough behind my house is now frozen over. So I can't get in it's that really right cold now. Tub. <laughs> it's really cold. That's no, just um, a mini ice skating ring for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For the birds, yeah. the birds get to skate on it, but I, I am getting ready to buy a, a sauna, a barrel sauna for the backyard and I'm a huge heat aficionado. So I'm excited to have one in, in the backyard. So I'm going to do some kind of hot, cold, hot, cold stuff once that, once that comes and get that set up. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you go through these experiments and you find something you like, what's your, what's your routine for deciding whether or not to keep it? And, and I heard you mention that you're not great at like daily rituals. So like, how do you, how do you make sure you keep up with it if, if you've decided that it's worth t- your time or your efforts? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I've, I've realized I'm, I'm not great at creating new habits. And so how this usually looks is like I do something for 20 or 30 days. And when trying something out, I'm like, I can't do this forever. That's just not who I am. But I know I can do it for 30 days. Mm-hmm. I When I, I quit drinking coffee earlier this year, and I was like, I can't quit coffee forever, but I can quit for 30 days. I know I can. <laughs> and so for August, I didn't have any coffee. But then... September 1st roll around. It's like, ah, I'm gonna go get my coffee. But what I found is that like, oh, I I don't have as much craving for coffee. And so in September, I had coffee like four times. Hmm. And, And then in October, I had coffee, I don't know, three times. And, and now I'm to the point where I just really don't have that same craving for coffee. Wow. But I, I, I try to do it as like little, little chunks of time to try to test out these things. And then to see how they kind of fit into my my natural lifestyle. And so like another example is is fasting. So I do intermittent fasting. And I did that for, you know, pretty strictly for 30 or 60 days using an app to track that the first time around. And I loved it. But I realized that like, okay, some days I want to eat at 8 a.m. and not noon. <laughs> and yeah. so then I I just do. But because it feels so good to not eat till noon most days like that's just become kind of my new default for the day and i guess i kind of see those habits they just they become a natural part of my rhythms and if i break them i don't stress i don't care Mm -hmm. but now my life is kind of shaped by the things i've experimented with yeah so that's that's kind of how it rolls out for me yeah that's nice it's just kind of like whatever naturally sticks and whatever feels good 
you keep mm-hmm. rolling and it'll be easy to motivate yourself to do it because it sticks and it feels right, fits into your system and it's motivating because it's it's enjoyable or feels good. So that, that makes total sense rather than trying to force a new habit on yourself. I was going to ask if you've read the uh, Tiny Habits book by Dr. B.J. Fogg, but it's just based on behavior design principles. And he's all about the the baby steps that build momentum towards a bigger action. So as a way of creating habits. So instead of, let's say I want to create a habit of like running five miles a day or something like that. Like you don't start with go run five miles today. You Mm -hmm. start with pull your shoes out of the closet. That's it for today. You know, like let's move on to the next day, like put your shoes on, like, and you kind of like work your way up to it. So you're not, getting that sense of failure. Cause like a lot of people will get super motivated around a new year's goal. Let's say they'll go out, they'll do it for like two days, two weeks, whatever straight. And then they miss a day. They feel so terrible about missing a day that then, you know, they might have another streak or they might miss a couple more days. And next thing you know, they're in this like battle with their own mindset around like being a failure or what they have to do to keep this up that ends up breaking the habit itself. But if you can make the habit, the required habit so small that it's almost impossible to break, then every day is a success. And eventually mm-hmm. that happiness kind of leads to motivation. And eventually the more, the more you scale that behavior, the easier it gets because you're starting to build some routine in and, and it's starting to become easier and more fun, et cetera. Um, so I've been reading that book and, and trying to think about uh, what habits I would want to design in my life. But I'm also like you, terrible at like keeping up with things on a daily basis. So I kind of, I'm kind of fall into like the, the method you mentioned that I just go with my what feels right. You know, like I'll, I naturally do intermittent eating as well, intermittent mm-hmm. fasting, but it's purely because most mornings I'm just not hungry, so I just don't yeah. eat hungry. <laughs> but yeah, some mornings I get up and I'm starving, like so I'll just eat. Yeah, yeah, and, and to, the one thing I'll add to that is there's so much information out there's so many things we want to do and there's so many habits we want to have and there's this other version of ourselves that we could become but we just can't do it all i've I've realized for myself i can't do it all i don't want to do every single thing every day there's not enough time i have too many other things i enjoy and so i've also just become okay with like yeah not not doing cold baths every day because like that's that's not the most important thing. Do I feel great after cold baths? Yes. Do I want to do them a couple of times a week or whenever I feel inspired and go jump in the river here in town? Yes, absolutely. And so it's like, you know, it's a habit, but it's not an everyday habit. And, and that's because there are so many other things that I enjoy. And then the other thing I'll say is, I think a lot of people still kind of have this weird thing around like food and and dieting and eating healthy versus not eating healthy. And it's like, once you just get a a general baseline of like eating pretty good food, like decent food, then you can just eat. Like you can just eat, you know, three times a day, twice a day, five times a day. And it doesn't matter because you're eating pretty good food. And then if you go buy a pint of ice cream, Ben and Jerry's dairy free, what's my favorite right now? They're like dairy free brown walnut brownie and you eat it in one night it's okay like <laughs> that i mean that's that's how i that's and how i do beat it yourself up yeah and don't beat yourself up like i enjoy every single bite and <laughs> i go to go to bed happy and i wake up the next day and there's no semblance of of guilt or anything like that but that's because just like my baseline is is pretty good is is pretty healthy yeah. and yeah so yeah to exactly that note, I love the phrase, and I remind myself of this often, 90% is still an A. <laughs> you, know, you don't, yeah. you don't yeah. have to crush your diet or your habit or whatever 100% right. of the time. But so long as you mostly get it, it's still worth patting yourself on the back about. And, you know, it's it's the occasional splurge is all right. Yeah. And then one more thing that's become really motivating for me, actually, is I realized how grateful for my body I am. Um, like, this this thing is a, is a miracle. And that makes like, I kind of see it as like a, I don't know, a business partner or a vehicle to do the things I want to do in life. And so moving it every day, eating healthy, getting lots of good sleep, like I am saying thank you to my body 
for like giving me this, all these amazing experiences. Like I am treating it with the utmost respect as like a part of, you know, gratitude and thanks for it. And that's really changed. It's like, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm, I'm doing it for my body so that it can continue to give me these things. It's a, it's a transaction. And that, that's been pretty cool to rethink that and, and think about that from a different angle. I think we just found your next book. Is that? <laughs> I don't know what the topic you were already thinking of, but I'm I'm ready to read that one right now. <laughs> I think that one's just an article, <laughs> okay. or or a tweet. Well, well I'll that's read my, the tweet or the article because that that's sounds my next, fascinating. That's yeah. my next tweet. Yeah, because yeah, I often funny. think like a lot of what you do to take care of yourself isn't for the right now. It's for when you're 60, 70, and you want to still be fairly mobile. And it's hard for people to keep that in mind because we're so used to immediate gratification of, you know, this world of technology and apps and everything. So it's hard to do this little bit of exercise right today that doesn't seem like it's going to make a huge impact on my life. So whatever, I'm busy and I'm going to skip it. But when you think of it in those terms of gratitude, that kind of helps frame the long-term investment a little bit more now-ish. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like it. So uh, what's next? For you, obviously, you just started this job, so maybe that's what's next for a little while. But any any other fun things on the horizon for your career or life, or just things you're interested in? Yeah, I uh, at the beginning of the year, I made a, a dedication or commitment. The next 35 years, I'm 35 now, so by age 70, I've committed myself to being of service to the regeneration of the planet, and that'll. You know, take form mainly i think through business and and or like org and and system redesign and so that could be like cities and and governments and nonprofits and kind of systemic rethinking but i really also think through the language of business and how businesses and markets can work more efficiently to to move capital to move money to really amazing things like i th- i think you know, at the end of the day, I was doing a, a facil- workshop facilitation a few months ago, and this older gentleman who was working in affordable housing in California, who had just like super passionate, hard on his sleeve, um, cared so deeply, and was trying to get these migrant families in homes and couldn't because of regulations and neighbors, and been working on this his entire life. He said, "You know, I love I love what you're facilitating here." but just follow the money, like make sure, you know, you have the resources to make these things happen. And, you know, ultimately that's going to be a part of the change we need to see. And I think arguably, you know, money's not the the sole component, nor should it be. But uh, I think part of my goal is figuring out how to shift capital to things that are radically, radically better for our health and well-being, radically better for the planet and I think there's a, a financial case to be made there. And if you can make that financial case, you unlock billions, if not trillions of dollars to shift over to that, to those new things that are going to be the future that we want to live in. You know, like we can't, we can't do it without the capital. And so that's, that's part of my goal is to redesign and rethink and, and build things that can attract capital. Um, for, for mm, in nice. service to regeneration. So um, that's what I'm doing. And, and that's what we're doing at Umano Venture Studio in many ways with kind of startups and new ideas that we'll put into the world. And then also for you know, doing that for investors who want to use their capital in service to, to a better world as well. So that's what I'm, I'm super excited about and what I'm committed to. That's beautiful. And I'm excited to learn vicariously through you because I think a lot of us do-gooders, uh, the money thing is not only like a lower priority, but almost like sometimes we've got like a toxic relationship with it where we feel like the desire for money is equivalent to greed. And therefore, we don't want to even think about trying to mm-hmm. you know use or gain resources or whatever. But but you're, you're right. Like we if we want to do more of the work, the necessary good work that has to be done. It's got to get funding from somewhere. So the more do-getters can get savvy with money and or the more we can attract um, the money to the projects we're working on, the better off the whole world will be. So yeah, smart strategy. I'm digging it. I think about money like 
I think about water, you know, let's take a million gallons of water and pipe it through pipes and clean it and have it come up spigots and feed or quench the thirst for hundreds of thousands of people. We can take that same million gallons and, you know, dump it on a, on a mountainside and it can cause a, a landslide and knock out homes and power and roads. And it's the same water. It just depends on what we do with it. And I, that's how I see money too. And so, you know, I think my one of my big asks for for do-gooders and for our community is to rethink that relationship with money and, and how it can be of service and how you can also be efficient with that money in service to your goals so that people want to give you more money to do <laughs> to do your thing better. You know, and then if if anybody's out there who read uh, Sapiens by Yuval Noah mm-hmm. Harari he also talks about you know money is really just a story it's this imaginary thing we've created and we've all agreed to and so i think that's another way for me to keep it loose that like you know i if i have a little or a lot either way i'll be okay but i still need to i still need to like use that story to move things around so that the world can be a little bit better place so it's it's like a it's like a game right <laughs> a little game that we're playing to move this money around just Move from column yeah. A to column B, and then yeah. take from column B to create thing C, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, fine. And I guess that yeah. flows back to one of your lessons of scaling Yum Butter too. It's just like money is a tool, and you need to know how to use that tool, and you need to buy the proper size of tool, and, yeah. and so on and so forth to achieve all the things you want to achieve with it. And um, yeah, so that's that's a good lesson, and. Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I'm looking forward to hearing more insights on that or in your future book. Maybe it's your next book on like attracting money to your do-gooder project or <laughs> it's like the flip side of the book you wrote instead of investing in stuff. <laughs> you're going to say you are a do-gooder, have people invest in you. That, that could yeah. be the next book. Part B. The next book I've had in my head for a little while is is imagining what the what the world could look like in 2030 if we if we do it right. Because I think we you know we talk about making things better, but one of the reasons we don't get buy-in is because people don't they don't have a vision of what that world lo- actually looks like. And so, you know, this would kind of be like not a mix of of sci-fi in the sense of it's a, a, a fictional story, but like futuring, looking into the future, and and creating a picture for what that looks like in in everyday life, in a city, in you know, in a country in Africa, in uh, our justice system, and painting those pictures not just abstractly, but but somewhat concretely, so that people can get excited about that vision, um, especially people outside of you know people people who are 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 trying to be change makers and, and make that happen because I think they get it, but not everybody's necessarily bought into what that could look like because they don't know what it looks like. They haven't imagined it. And so still trying to figure out how to, how to write that one, but that's, I'm pretty excited about that. That one sounds like a, a good novel. And I'm thinking like of often a lot of the books that spur movements, like even the sustainability movement, right. It's about like dystopian novels of like, this is how bad it's going to look if we don't get our shit together. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. This could be like a, Hey, let's let's stop focusing on the bad, but look how good it could be if we do get our shit together. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things could actually work. We could actually have equity, like you know. And and I think it would also be a boost for a lot of people who are doing that work on a daily basis, because like I think for them it probably feels endless and hopeless and and on some days. And so if you can just like see what that could look like in the future, uh, there might mm-hmm. be. Um, path at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, especially right after a year like this, 2020, where everyone's just gotten beaten to the ground 10 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> like, it'd, be nice. yeah. it'd be nice to have some hope for 10 years from now. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could, could look good. Hopefully this is our, our Great Depression, right? Like I think the generation that came out of the Depression was just super resilient and resourceful and, you know, I don't know about grateful, but maybe they're more grateful. And, and hopefully this is our generation's great depression yeah that would be cool because uh my grandmother grew up in the great depression and a lot of my first seedlings of sustainability came from her like you know Mm. not necessarily that she was a sustainability advocate but she grew up in times where you you kept things you used you know you used as much of a thing as you could and you you stored you like pickled vegetables or froze things you 
cleaned out the bag that you just used <laughs> to like store something and you reuse the bag, yep. you know, like yep, yep. It's all about like stretching your resources as much as possible. And it mm -hmm. didn't occur to me that those were some lessons that I was learning from her until like I found myself doing a lot of those habits as an adult and realizing that a lot of that came from her wisdom of, you know, growing up on a farm in the depression where you had to get the most out of whatever few resources you had. Yeah, so absolutely. If, if this, you know, hellscape of 2020 can <sighs> kind of turn into a moment of like teaching people how to live healthier and happier lives, which to some degree, at least the healthier part seems to be happening. Cause you know, I, I love and miss restaurants, but a bunch of people being forced to all of a sudden cook at home has shifted focus to like thinking about, okay, well maybe I should learn how to cook with better ingredients and focus more on that, that diet that I've been curious about, but didn't have the time to focus on to either mm -hmm. cook it or, or keep up with the ritual or anything. So yeah, that's one thing that I'm excited. Or you can just, or you can just move to a, a small town in the middle of nowhere that has no really good restaurants and then you never eat out. <laughs> <laughs> that was your diet. That's how you did it. <laughs> That's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the gratitude body is a temple. You just, it was all temptation <laughs> from your yeah. life. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's a good method. All right. So yeah, you heard, you heard it everyone moved into the middle of nowhere and, and no diet needed anymore. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have great restaurants around, you're not going to spend all your money there. I do think people should move to the middle of nowhere. If for you know just sanity and 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 joy, for political reasons, you know I think if we can like shift diversify small towns and rural areas, like that could be a massive massive impact on kind of the the cultural consciousness as well, because uh, we we yep. tend to aggregate in in urban areas, and so just being in a in a small town has given me a new appreciation for that and then also the power that that kind of our, our migration from cities as they become far too expensive to live in and far too much traffic to get around in that could be an additional benefit as we you know diversify and and open the minds of of small places and rural places nice yeah that's cool because yeah. it could instead of having urban people and rural people you could have people who happen to just live in rural environments and people who happen to live in yeah. urban environments. And they're all, you know, a mix of different, you know, political beliefs or educational backgrounds, jobs, et cetera, but we're all intermingled and learning from each other. Yeah. 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 That's cool. Plus it's a lot cheaper. That's one of the benefits <laughs> I've had is yeah. I actually did something similar during COVID is, you know, downtown Seattle is crazy expensive. And it seemed like it was going to continue going up forever. So when COVID hit and I knew we were going to get locked in for a long time, we moved out to Olympia to have more nature around us and mm -hmm. bought a house out in this area, which is the smallest city I've ever lived in, I think, at this point. So it's an interesting shift. It's not quite as small as uh, where you went, but, uh, you know, because there are still a few restaurants <laughs> down, <laughs> yeah. uh, that are tempting, but uh, yeah. but it has been an interesting shift and I've I've heard there's actually maybe partly because of COVID, but you know, for also reasons of cities are just getting crazy expensive that there are more people negotiating flexible, you know, work from home kind of rules with their jobs so they can go move into smaller towns. Like mm -hmm. I heard, I think it was Burlington has been taking off lately and it has just mm -hmm. a big remote culture there now, like a lot mm -hmm. of remote workers. Yeah. So I'm interested to see how that continues. Yeah, or or even like moving your companies and, and starting companies in these small towns. That's something I've actually been working with a couple different stakeholders in our county around, uh, including the Small Business Development Center. And I think we're really fortunate to have some forward-thinking folks in those organizations who are thinking about what does rural resilience look like in three, four, five years from now, so that if a pandemic hits again or anything hits again and you know tourism is cut off for months at a time, like how do we have a more diversified economy? How do we have uh, more small businesses, more startups, you know, and, and just thinking about what a more entrepreneurial minded ecosystem could look like, which has been really, really cool to to be a part of a project like that. And we have yeah. all these small towns that are across America that are 
either dying or or thriving and they have a choice to make and so you know seeing an area make a choice like that has been pretty cool yeah that's cool i guess it comes back to kind of your your interest for future paths forward and building more regenerative society culture like it all kind of fits into that like how do we redesign the distribution of people and how do we redesign the distribution of resources amongst small cities, big cities and, mm-hmm. and like tra- everything needs to be innovated, you know, <laughs> like yeah, transportation yeah. systems and energy grids and so on and so forth. There's mm-hmm. an unlimited list of problems to solve. And I think that's one of my problems, just like your, your one thing journal that you're playing with there, <laughs> you just one thing on like, I yeah. feel like that's me is like, there's, there's way too many fun, sticky things to like, dig dig into and really untangle and try to figure out some interesting solutions to that that you could build a whole career out of any one of those paths but to have to just pick one path to stay on is so difficult so i I do Mm -hmm. love getting my hands in a lot of different types of sustainability or uh, regenerative or you know social impact type projects because they're all interesting yeah when somebody told me there's such thing as a you know, a designer or a business model designer, like the people who work at IDEO who like don't have to work on the same thing or the same industry every day. I was like, oh, why? Like nobody told me that in high school or college. I didn't, I didn't know that was a an, an option. Like that's me. That's, <laughs> that's what I want to yeah, do. Totally. I don't know if it was an option back then, but yeah, I, t- I recently discovered that title too. I was yeah. like, oh, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> yeah. All these kids coming out of the Stanford D school, you know, design school. I was like, I didn't know there was a design school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's cool stuff. I like I like the the increasing possibilities of different career paths that you can go into. Like that's the one of the benefits about technology. Obviously, there's lots of downsides too. Is it's it's giving more space to different types of fields that you can focus on, and and then even by having those open up, it allows you to rediscover existing old jobs that were there too, but now you can reinvent them. Anyway, so many paths to go down. So many. <laughs> So many fun things to consider focusing on, but I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule yeah, and bringing absolutely. your cool pineapple shirt that the people on the podcast don't get to see. But <laughs> hop over to YouTube and you can check out Adrian's cool pineapple shirt <laughs> brought to the interview. But uh, again, appreciate your time. And it's always been fun following your journey. And I look forward to continuing seeing where you go. Same to you, Gage. Thank you for being uh, a voice for change and impact and sustainability. And I same back to you. I, I look forward to following your journey and everything you keep continuing to create. It's always fun. Awesome. Well, go team. Go team. Take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Adrian or his company, go to umana.studio. That's U-M-A-N-A dot studio not.com subscribe to our podcast and youtube channel for more innovator interviews expert advice and leadership discussions if you like this episode hit that like button and share it with your colleagues and of course send us feedback and ideas for who we should talk to next at evolve at modernspecies.com and learn about our new online community at evolvecpg.com see you next week